it's going to be amazing like the second like sort of a mission impossible style like the second this is uploaded to the cloud i'm hightailing it two hours to a meeting with the biggest provider in australia so i'm very excited about that wow dude. <laughs> but, um, so, so what yeah. a day yeah so i've sort of done well, I've, I've put that pitch together as well as this pitch <laughs> They don't get them mixed up in a Mrs. Doubtfire <laughs> style because that could ruin us all. <laughs> and I like the fact that you do it wrong with me and I just sit here and take it and go, okay, that's an interesting take. And then you go off and then you deliver the the, the podcast to the guy. And he's like, I like that take. <laughs> Amazing. I, I want to hear the other guys. He listens to the podcast that he's already got. <laughs> Look over at the end of the pitch, it's like, yeah, uh... We'd like to work with you, James, but definitely make sure you, you get rid of that Vegman guy before, uh, before you start the set. Yeah, we don't want no pencil-necked geeks. Because it's all, it's all top-end and no substance in the middle, Sheppy. So that's... that's uh, it sounds like that's... Ghostbusters too. <laughs> you can keep that bit in. That bit's of great. Of course I will, Sheppy. Put that in. Just put that always in assume I'm keeping the gold just, every time. Just, just you don't even... <laughs> <laughs> by goals i mean you know the things. <laughs> yeah well yeah that that stuff yeah which we have a gold sort of substance terry's all gold if you're lucky um wonderful jimbo i'm 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 ready when you are if you want to just jump in and laura well welcome to shoulders of giants i'm jimmy hello i am sheppy um, and today we are I, well i set us the challenge uh last week of tackling ghostbusters 3 um before we're recording this before Ghostbusters Afterlife hits the, the screens. Now, um, I'm going to say really quickly, just at this moment, because it seems like a good moment, that, yeah, it's nice about this sequel, because I don't know which way you've gone with. I think you know which way I've gone with, just because I, I've talked about it like loads. But, I like, you know, in a way, it does, I mean, it's good that we haven't seen Ghostbusters Afterlife, because it means we're, we're fresher, I guess. And I haven't even seen the trailer, because I was, you know, keeping pure. So I know tiny, tiny bits, but not much. Um, and of course, there's the other Ghostbusters film with you know, uh, which, with, with the ladies, which you know, I feel it. I feel obliged to mention for legal reasons at this point that I liked the lady one, but it, it, in terms of the sequel that we're doing, you know, it's like it doesn't even matter that there's another Ghostbusters sequel, you know, coming and an, an exact sequel at that, um, because I'm the my sequel at least could only exist in one time place. So actually there could be a hundred more Ghostbusters films coming out. It doesn't actually affect what I, you know, the direction I chose. So, so that's nice. Mine is the Highlander 3 to Afterlife's Highlander 2 uh, in that it's coming first, but that it was made after. Clever stuff, clever stuff. <laughs> I think we've both got exactly the same, Sheppy. And I, I'll nice. be honest, I didn't, um... I, I didn't enjoy the, the female Ghostbusters, honestly. Um, mm. I love the cast members individually, all hilarious, um, and have all been hilarious and made me LOL lots. And uh, I just felt the cartoonification of the ghosts just got me off from the beginning. And then well, the, it, there were... All disclosure, who... I don't even remember that. I, I, I remember just... Honestly, I don't remember much about it. I remember liking them. But I don't remember the plot. I remember it had cameos from the survivors. But yeah, sorry for that. I interrupted. Yeah, well, the cameos were all up as well, particularly the Venkman one, where he was sort of some old boy that I, I didn't really quite <laughs> understand it. And then the the 
the only other thing, like there's a sort of a a Reitman-esque edge or just palette or something to the first two Ghostbusters that is just missing. You know what I mean? Like, and it's, I don't know what it is really. It's where it's sort of a comedy, but it's not filmed like a comedy and it kind of feels, yeah. you know what I mean? Like you've got comedic players, but it is shot in like super widescreen and feels yeah. like it's in New York and very grounded in New York at a certain time and place. Yeah. And there's sort of a, I don't know, like a gray color palette a little bit to it. And, and I sort of love that, it, you know, yeah. it's only really a couple of gags of being almost a bit of a horror, you know, and let me, well, yeah, let me say this very, you know, um, in terms of what you're saying, it's absolutely correct. And in terms of it almost being a horror, I respond to comedies personally, my favorite comedies are all ones that are really cinematic, like the John Landis ones. Um, and also, you know, uh, Tropic Thunder, uh, just really, really cinematic. And, and this is one of those, because it's a really good film which is all also a comedy. Uh, and, you know, and by, you know, what I mean by when I say it, it's just a really good film, which is also a comedy. Um, it's not just a comedy, which is good. I hope that distinction makes sense with, you know, to, with the two listeners, but it's like, uh, so Ghostbusters is very much that. And let me say quickly about Reitman, Ivan Reitman who directed Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, and his son is Jason Reitman, who I love all of his films actually, so that's great. But anyway, Reitman, I, I, I love Ghostbusters, and that's that's my favourite Ivan Reitman film. I've got a special place in my heart for Kindergarten Cop, and Twins has grown on me um, a little bit, uh, and Ghostbusters 2, which I will talk about, I, I have good feelings towards. So I'm forgetting something he made. I, I think I sort of gave up on him after Six Days, Seven Nights, which I didn't hate, but also um, he did study doing things that I, in fairness, I haven't seen, but my ex-girlfriend, my super, my, my super ex-girlfriend, um, and, and other things. And I saw Evolution at the cinema, and I think that was my final straw, where I was hoping for a Ghostbusters level, if some form of quality. And I just remember being very disappointed with Evolution. And I don't know, in retrospect, that's like, they oh, were I was really disappointed with Six Days of the Night. So it's like, yeah, it's obviously a bit shit in retrospect, but I had high hopes, and so, my Reitman bandwagon was dashed a little bit there. But to be honest, it's only ever been Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2 to an extent in kindergarten uh, and all the other ones I've never been. So he's one of those directors where he's made far more films that I'm at best indifferent to, um, than, but he has made one particular film that is right up there for me. And it is a comedy, but it is also, you know, a supernatural thriller, I guess and horror iconic movie like yes. iconic in you know that marketing team i hope they're still in business and i hope they're like you know flying because well, my god you know I, I i feel i have to mention this my first exposure to ghostbusters ever as far as i'm aware was 1984 and i was playing on the little bit of field outside my house in Cranley, and someone one of the gang came over and with a can of coke or something and it had the ghostbusters logo on the coke can i thought that we had no other information um but i thought it was bulk the villain uh stooge the otis if you will to texas pete in super ted it looked like bulk to me and if you check it out it is actually you know, fair enough so that was my first ever exposure to ghostbusters uh but then i found out about it and i went to guildford cinema 
and I don't know if I went with anyone else, but I do remember my mum being there. But I am going to say, whilst I'm on this little tangent, I remember it was a packed cinema, Guildford Odeon, 1984, and everyone was laughing. I remember specifically the bit where Lewis has turned into the dog. Uh, no, he's being chased by the dog thing uh, and in the party, and he's running out. Oh, there's a bear in my apartment, a bear in his apartment. It was that bit, and he's running into Central Park and the thing's jumping across the road after him. I remember everyone in the cinema, like in a film, everyone was laughing and really going for it. And I remember glancing over to my mum, who was sitting next to me, who's not a big fan of occult stuff. And she was just sitting there, really stony faced. And I remember I started laughing even louder and harder, kind of like in my childish naivete, I think I was like being like, ah, ha, ha, look, look, I'm having a good time. Why don't you have a good time? Ah, maybe, I don't know. I think I was, at the least I was like, oh, well, if you're not gonna have a good time, check this out. Ah. But I remember that yeah. and from an outside perspective, that must've looked like I was a psychotic little boy just looking, eh. <laughs> looking at the screen. But that, that's, that, those are my main specific original memories of what Ghostbusters. Sheppy, I, I think it doesn't make you a psychotic little boy. It just makes you like you, you would have fat, fitted in with the New York elite in the 80s who just eat them <laughs> while Lewis gets eaten. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. my, my memory of it was my mum's boyfriend, uh, Ian. She was seeing Ian at the time and he was trying to sort of impress and, and take me out to a couple of movies. He took me to Ghostbusters and Temple of Doom. And, um, nice. Well, and, that's a good way to impress any young boy. <laughs> that would work for like, me. Yeah, both traumatised for different reasons. Let and me yeah. say, I've always been a cool fan of Ian. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was, I remember just being absolutely terrified by the librarian ghost at the beginning. And, yes. um, and it, it just scared the bejesus out of me to the point where he took me a second time and I asked if we could go after six minutes. Like, do you know what I mean? So we, so we oh, could miss that. Nice. Bit, worse I was. And then well, they, I better quickly say, in case I forget, because I can't leave I am worst you may be but i didn't see the scary face until maybe my third or fourth or fifth viewing because i hid i knew something was going to happen and i didn't look and just quickly a few years later parkmead first school they showed it as like a special treat one time and i still hid my eyes when that when the ghost lady at the beginning popped up and i remember every all the other kids around me i guess i was like nine at that point or eight, eight or nine, everyone else was like, ah, and I was just like, oh, no. it's like the end of Raiders. Um, so, so there you go. So if you be worse, I be worse. Eh? So, <laughs> so Maybe that should be our intro at the top. I like it. <laughs> um, or just ever uttered again. And I, I haven't done my research on this one, Sheppy, um, insofar as I haven't revisited probably Ghostbusters 2, uh, but, but I did revisit Ghostbusters last year. And I got to say, one of the things I took away from it specifically was what an MVP Rick Moranis is in that first movie. Like he is for me now, by some distance, the funniest thing in that film. Not not, no. not, not really the dog chasing bit. I don't really see the humor in that bit. <laughs> but, but you know, you're you're of course your team now. Yeah, <laughs> what, a, what a surprise! Sickening. He is amazing. And did you know it was meant to be John Candy, but he wanted to play it as a German and it sort of didn't work and it didn't gel with the overall vision. So they, they got Moranis instead. Two space balls. Keep that thought, keep that thought Sheppy, because there's, there's a twist to that. Oh, oh <laughs> nice. Um, so, so you dig your Lewis Tully and he is amazing. And as far as somebody, let me, yeah, is 
my favorite sound bite of all time. And by the way, that's it's just you know, it's very clever because then it's immediately the scariest scene, even more than Ghost Lady, the arms coming out of the chair. Um, that's horrific. And I don't think I sat down for a week, Sheppy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really good. And it's like coming out between her legs and taking over her face. And uh, you have just this massive hand, something so primevally horrible about having a massive face. And you can just sort of have your eye visible through the, through the fingers as it's grabbing your face. Horrendous, horrendous. Though I love that. And that's another just a nice example of the horrificness. And yes, Lewis Tully all night long. Uh, well, that's the other thing. You've got your three main players and they're amazing. Then you've got your, your Weaver and you've got your Moranis. And you've got your Walter Peck, who's amazing. And I loved, I love that sort of villain. It's, it's kind of your, uh, a more effective Ferris Bueller, Ed. Um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's that, but he's, he's more effective and he's nasty and I like that sort of character. And can I say, and I'm gonna mention it later, I'm sure, but whilst I'm on this, um, Ghostbusters also has one of my favorite cinematic people and villains and antagonists of all time. And it's not Peck and it's not Gozer. It's, it's Dean Yeager right at the beginning and he's smug as fuck and he kicks them out and he fires them from the university. Um, and just the way when, when Ray is coming in really excited after the library and he's going, oh, the possibilities are endless. And he goes, hey, Dean Yeager. And he turns around and he's so triumphant. And the look on Dean Yeager's face, which is like, hey, Dean Yeager. And he turns around and he's because he knows he's won and he knows he's going to fire them. That's my favorite expression on a face in not only any film ever, but on any face ever. Uh, so I'm a big fan <clears throat> of Dean Yeager and he never gets his comeuppance. And I always thought in the bit in the film where everything's going crazy and the reactor's blown and everything's nuts, there could have been a sh just one shot of Dean Yeager getting some form of comeuppance. It would be very easy to do, and maybe even a bit neater to, to have some sort of closure on that, but they don't. And some part of me really likes that because Dean Yeager totally wins and he's proper. The, if Ghostbusters were a 10 season show and then becoming Ghostbusters was like when they jumped the shark on season six, Dean Yeager would have been like the main character or at least the main villain for at least season two or three onwards. It, he's like hardcore villain and I love him. So I had to give a special mm. shout out to Dean Hager. You know what I love about it too, Sheppy? I've not really ever thought about it like that, but the, just one of the feels of Ghostbusters that I love, I, I, I want to say it's in my top three for New York movies. Like it just mm. feels like they're in the city on location and it is just, it is across all the burbs, all the burbs of New York City. Like, you know what I mean? It just feels like that. So it's of a scale, you know? The university is on the other side of town. It doesn't get covered in marshmallow. He's not even in Manhattan, if you know what I mean. Like, it's kind of like a... Yeah. And that's right. Like, where I would say, like, the Ghostbusters with the ladies felt very setty. There's something around the... It's just like it's on the streets, man. And they do really good work with the extras. And when they when they go down under the sort of the city collapsing, like you're saying, and the earthquake right. and they go back out and like and everyone's cheering, and like just you're just like pumped. Because yeah. it feels like New York yeah. is there, like you know, on behind the Ghostbusters, which I always yeah. found um so frustrating. It's one of those classics in the sequel for Ghostbusters 2 that they saved the city objectively. And then they're ostracized, yeah. you know, and they're scattered to the wind. And I I yeah. felt like, Christ, they've got a short memory. Like, do you know what I mean? In New yeah. York, like, it's a bit tough. Well, well, if we, shall we talk about Ghostbusters 2 
for a moment. Yeah, let's do that quickly, um, then we'll jump in. Yeah, yeah. Because I'll say this. Well, let me ask you this. Did you watch the real Ghostbusters? Were you a fan of the cartoon? I mean, the yeah, I don't remember a single episode of it. So it hasn't improved. In the 80s. Yeah. It was big. Um, I, okay, I just want to mention that because, yes, the thing about Ghostbusters 2, of course, is that it is obviously heavily, heavily influenced by the success of the real Ghostbusters. It's more kiddie friendly and no one smokes and you know, there are no blowjob jokes. And it's uh, Janine looks like a cartoon character. She's actually fitting Ghostbusters too, but she looks like a cartoon character. She looks like a cartoon version. Um, it's like, okay, and of course they have to have Slimer then do something and they have to bring back. And the other thing is, it is one of those sequels that does hit the same beats and have exactly the same character types, like the Peck type, but he's not given anything more it's just a peck type and all this apparently there was another script that was really out there pure acroid but they didn't do it but it's just you know and at the end you've got the statue of liberty instead of the stay puff there's a lot of similarities so that's the big problem and what you're saying about you know the beginning where it's like they they undo the good feeling it's kind of like if at the beginning of Rocky Two, he's just like Adrian's left him. It's like, oh, well, what was it all for? It's like, oh no. So it's like, I get that. But I will also say that my favorite bit, and by bit, I mean like whole chunk of film in Ghostbusters 2 is the beginning where it's them scattered and them doing their, and I guess what I really mean is my favorite bit is, is Bankman's TV show with the broad pets and all of that and looking at the camera. Um, so it's probably that, but also frankly, go, um, going into the slime under the in the tunnels. I like that sequence of Ray being lower down, and I really like the bump five years later. And then I like that opening sequence with the slime and Dana and the baby and the cars. Um, I like all of that, so that's good. And of course, Murray is just you know he's Murray and he's amazing, and Ackroyd's great, and and um, Ramis and, and you know everyone's very good. Um, Janosch is obviously the Lewis Tully counterpart. Again, it's a sort of a dweeby weirdo. So it's like, oh no, I have no problem with Janosch specifically, but I have the bad breath, but it is a bit like, okay, but it is exactly the same. So you and I saw Ghostbusters 2 at Cranley Cinema, am I correct? I think so, Shep. I can't remember. Oh, you insult me. But yeah, we did. I was just asking you. I was being polite. Yeah, we fucking did. And I'll tell you something else. <laughs> I was all over it then as well. The first, like, 25 minutes, I was like, this is all right. Um, and, you know, and I've always liked it, but I do have this nostalgia. And you did. I'm just going to tell you, not even ask you. You had the Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2 double set on VHS. Yeah, I remember that. And that was cool. That cost £8,000. And it was worth every penny. Um, so, yeah, so that was nice. Um, so I do have very fond feelings of Ghostbusters too. But, it, you know, it is what it is. And any, any extra happiness is fine by me. But it's, yeah, it is that sort of sequel. Like, ah, okay. Any other thoughts? No, Sheppy, I think you've summarised that. And I, I don't, I mean, of course we watched it in the cinema together. 1989 was a seminal year for us in the movies. And... Um, but yeah, and I remember that video cassette very fondly. Um. Yeah, yeah, solid stuff. Um, little fun fact, and I didn't realise this until the last time I saw Ghostbusters 2, which wasn't that long ago. Um, the whole, I always think of, when I think of Ghostbusters 2, I think of Bulk, you know, doing the Ghost 2 B sign, and I think of the cover, and they're all wearing the new different uniform, 
but actually in the film they only wear that new uniform once in one scene but apparently Ivan Reitman didn't like it and so he got rid of this and they just wear the the classic all the way through I never I never noticed but it's true but I always identify Ghostbusters with that uniform it's a great uniform Sheppy I I once did a um I, I was manager of the the Wembley branch of my uh my old company um, and we had a, we had a gig in town on Halloween. It was someone's leaving do, and she did it as a fancy dress. So me and three fellas dressed up as Ghostbusters. And we, um, I remember this so vividly. It's one of my favourite memories. We had like inflatable backpacks, and we had the gear on. You know? And um, and then basically, um, we we got a cab into town, and we got stuck in traffic. Um, and basically, um, we we asked the cabbie to just pull over, and we ended it's up so running. I know we had to run through Leicester Square to try and get into the get to the club. And as we're running, people were trying to go. <laughs> like oh my hero. god, that's that's better than meeting Matthew Perry, man. That's the top. <laughs> that's great. Um, that's amazing. And I can even hear the music of that ding 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 ding. What do you need from me? Woo-hoo! <laughs> and I tell you, Shep's like. You can't help but try and be all Venkman charming. Like you're talking to ladies in the pub going, look, it's the busiest night of the year, but I thought I'd just have a, have a drink. <laughs> so I hope there are photos of that because that, that there is... There are, the man. Post. I'll try and like, maybe when we get our feed properly, we can post something. Um, but yeah. Um, should we just... Well, that's in? great. Are you ready? Let's I'm go. Ready. You, you it, was your, it was your choice. It was your okay. selection. Yeah, I'll, so, I'll, um, I'll go for let's it. Let's get into your Ghostbusters. Is it called Ghostbusters 3? It is called Ghostbusters 3, and I've literally written here, no colon, no monkey business. We have <laughs> our ghost with three fingers. Um, nice. And I just, on this as well, like, I just wanted to make a point that I probably made already on this pod, but I'll make it again. Like, I want that level of consistency all the time. I want consistency of font in my credits all the time for sequels. Like, yeah. it always, it, it still irks me that Last Crusade is a bit different. Like, do you know what I mean? Just, I just can't, I just, anyway, but it's just, you know, I'm getting over it slowly. Yeah, that's um, what you mean. I mean, in fairness, they're all different. Out of those three, the title font is different to each one. And that, that that just keeps me up at night. I want consistency. <laughs> Back to the Future does it well. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You must love that. Well, fair enough. Um, so, so we're, okay. We're You're keeping the consistency of font. Yes. <laughs> that we're 1994. Nice. We're directed by Reitman again. We're written by Raymond Snackwood again. Um, I, uh, I guess... There's some some consistent bits and pieces that I wanted to sort of um, pull through. Um, so we've got, uh, you know, the on-off of Murray and Weaver. I definitely want to have that in again. They they start this not together again. Um, okay. We um, we kind of had. I feel like the first one was kind of on the streets and the ghosts of New York, Manhattan, sort of thing. We then went a little bit underworld, if you like, with the slime, as you say, in the second. I feel this one is going to be dealing with up top a bit, Sheppy. We might be dealing with a bit of heaven. Um, I'm going with like the sort of marshmallow in the first one, slime in the second, maybe a big flood of holy water in this one, possibly or equivalent. Um, I, I haven't, I've got some concepts here, Sheppy, that aren't fully pulled, but we'll just see. Lay it on me. Um, the, um, you know, certain little beats I'd love to see recreated, like, Moranis is going to be in the gang, by the way, as a fifth Ghostbuster in a minute. Um, but he's going to be a bit poked and prodded again for a reason that will become clear it, it soon. 
um, attested because of his supernatural experience. Um, and then the, um, I think I, I already mentioned it, but we're in the second one, they've been a bit disbanded and sort of ostracized and no longer everybody's favorite. And poor old yeah. Ray and Zedemore are going to kids' parties and the kids don't even want to play with him. They want to play Spider Man. He man, sorry, <laughs> Jesus, that didn't age well. Although, 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 it's kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but this is going to be the opposite of that. And um, they're not only still together. I've put Moranis is on the team. Lewis Tully's on the team, and there are like splinter volunteer community volunteer Ghostbusters, like firefighters everywhere. Like Ghostbusters is a thing. The uniform is sort of out there and there's people doing it. So we've actually pulled the thread on the concept in a different direction, you know? So um, there's the core group, but then you have like local firefighters, Ghostbusters is a franchise, you know? Um, Yes. And then you've got volunteers as the next level down. So here's our cast, Sheppy. See if this gets you excitable. Murray is Venkman. Ramus is Egon, Ackroyd is Ray, Hudson is Zedemore, Weaver's back as Barrett. We, I haven't, I, I realised as you were saying him, I'd put this at the top and then forgotten to do anything with him, but he's definitely back as Atherton's peck. <laughs> we've, got, um, we've got Annie Potts as Janine again, we've got Moranis back, then here's two for you. Alan Rickman as God. Oh. I mean, come on, man. Hot off <laughs> Prince of Thieves and Die Hard. Um, and then we've got John Candy as Professor Mo Lasky bit of a nod to vacation character he's going to be a librarian at the, at the uh, columbia university that's uh, not, not a german one but um but in nonetheless and um so 94 candy. he's cutting it close with candy like it's you're candy. in under the wire i think but i think that's on the line but maybe i mean i don't want to be too insensitive because i bloody love that man's pieces but you know maybe if he wasn't on location on his horse and he was around friends who knows maybe he would have been the boy Kinnear. Yeah, maybe be saved. Um, but anyway, um, we opening is uh, October thirty first, nineteen ninety four. That's on the, the the boom, if you like, at the beginning. Consistent font to your five years later. Let's keep it that. <laughs> <laughs> and we sort of have a shot of Ecto One heading into Columbia University. Columbia University. We've got Ray and um, and uh, and Zedemore in at the wheel, um, driving in like they they always seem to be on road trips together in my mind. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and we have Tully in the back, and he's sort of the fifth Ghostbuster in this one. And I sort of see Tully being a bit of a Leo Getz from Lethal Weapon, <laughs> just uh, tinkering with the buttons still and not really comfortable yet even though it's five years later as a Ghostbuster <laughs> and being a bit annoying still in the back, you know. And um, they get to the university. Candy is in the university. He's a lecturer by day, but actually one of these amateur Ghostbusters by night as well. And he has a little harem of kids that he's got, you know, as a special Halloween treat in the university library. Um, and the Ghostbusters have, you know, done their thing and are kind of joining them on a, on a section of the library that's said to be haunted. And um, I realise immediately from my own anecdote that probably setting this on October 31st is a deep flaw, given that probably will be Ghostbusters' busiest night. But, you know, we can change this. We can change this before we uh, before we do the table read. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love it if, uh, given I've done that little nod to... Um, to, to uh, Candy's characters called Mo Lasky, yeah. and it's that nod to vacation. I wonder whether he could do a little, can you even break skin with that thing pointing to Ray's little. <laughs> anyway, let's leave it. No more vacation references. Um, so they're doing the tour around the library with the kids to an area that's meant to be haunted. So we've got a big nod to the first one, obviously, setting this in the library. Um, but it's all for show. 
you know, they're all going woo and all this sort of thing. You know, there's not meant to be anything real um, until Moranis is playing. I don't know what any of the equipment's called anymore, Sheppy, but he's playing playing with his little energy thingy, and he gives it. A, Should it really be doing that? And um, and Ray looks at it, and some reading on it is off the charts, sort of thing. You know, and and things look a little bit, you know, actually suddenly real. So we cut to Murray. I mean, Ram Ramis is downstairs tinkering with something or other at the at the HQ. Um, and um, they're so busy now that Murray's interviewing for an assistant and um, two candidates again, just absolute uh, shameless lift of the beats of the original. Um, he's weighing up um, whether to bring in. I'm, I'm thinking we could have a real nod back and bring back the two, you know, cameos that we had for the first one, the man with his chewing gum and the the, the pretty lady. Yes. Um, and maybe here we do the same. We do exactly the same gag where uh, Stephen Tash. That actor's cool. <laughs> Has he done yes. that when I was there too or something awesome like that? I hope so. <laughs> uh, I, I hope so, but that, that's not off the top of my head. I couldn't do it yet. I don't think he's done much else. Probably a lot of TV. But maybe we have, you know, a silly scene where he's walking them around, showing them the place. The guy would be perfect. He knows that everything's yes. called and, you know, um, and, and the girl is sort of scared of breaking a nail filing and, you know, all the cliches and scared of the slime, doesn't want to touch any of the fellas all over it. But Venkman's giving her preference at every point, you know, and say, well done, well done, all that sort of silly stuff. And I, I regret this, to be honest, and I thought, but especially given what you said about Ghostbusters 2, but at some point um, she accidentally opens a containment she's so useless and slime is released, you know, and, uh, and Murray gives it, don't worry, he always gets out and he's just kind of knocking around, you know. Um, That's fair. I have nothing against Slimer coming back. Yeah, I guess he probably should be. Um, and then back to the library um, and the Ghostbusters have split up. So Zedemore is with Candy and just sort of walking around. Ray is kind of walking around as well. And he bumps into an old librarian called, I'm just calling him Jackie. Maybe it's a, a Reitman cameo. Um, and he's just by his ladder and he's just sorting out some books and being really friendly and jovial and nice to Ray. And he points him around the corner to say, oh, if you're looking for something, maybe just pop around there, whatever. And Ray's like, okay, thanks. And they've had a nice little bit of chat. He bumps back into Candy and Zedimore, explains, and the kids, and he explains the old man gave him directions. So there isn't an old man. And it turns out the old man is like a shining style ghost. And nice. but was incredibly human. And that's the twist, I guess. And, um, and they go back to the ladder and there's just a puddle of water where the ladder is. And they start investigating it. Moranis being a bit useless, dabs the water um, and tastes it. And uh, it just gives it a little, you know, uh, tongue yeah. and, um, and then suddenly it just goes black. And he's like, we hear Moranis going, guys, guys, guys. He's in something like a closet or something. He falls out of this little closet and he's back in the library, but in another area of it. He catches up with the group. And, um, and Candy, Zedemore, Ray, the kids, obviously all traumatized, are standing over his body trying to resuscitate him. Oh. And, um, and Alan Rickman appears at this point, looking nails as F, I put. And, um, <laughs> just asks him what it is that his heart desires. And, you know, Moranis is obviously totally lost at sea. And, and Rickman's like, you don't even need to tell me. And, um, and Lewis, like, comes good, re resuscitates, wakes up. Um, they take him back to the Ghostbusters HQ 
and um, where you know the pretty girl's been hired <laughs> it's causing chaos already with Janine on the phone um, and uh, and Egon immediately wants to run tests on Tully having you know tasted that water or whatever they're bickering about what he's experienced and all that sort of stuff this is the whole gang together in the HQ um, and suddenly Sigourney Weaver as Dana uh, bursts into the station and Bateman gives it a oh Dana you know and you, do, you know and she she just walks straight past Murray asking <laughs> if is Lewis there she finds Lewis, gives him a massive kiss. The gang are super shocked. Slime, um, obviously, out of his little thing, gives it a chuckle. <laughs> a big, fat chuckle. And Begman's like, has some kind of witty repartee with a get back in your box, or what are you laughing at, you fat bastard? You know? <laughs> Slimer has full consciousness in my, in my universe. Yeah, like he was like, driving a bus in the second one. He's like, this is a Ghostbuster. Um, but anyway, then then at that moment, though, we get the three fingers Ghostbusters, you know, to, 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 you know whatever. And, um, so anyway, then we're straight back to the same scene. And this is where it all starts to come apart, really, for me, Shep, because I've got my opening, but not much else. And we establish that Weaver in this moment is normal, but totally, but in love with Lewis and very defensive about it. She's totally, it's not like she's turned into, um, you know, the, the, the uh, she was the, yeah, I can't remember which way around they were, but yeah. Uh, um, are you the gatekeeper? I think she's the gatekeeper. Yeah, must be. Uh, which actually makes sense in the sort of the phallic sense of it. But anyway, <laughs> nice. the, um, but it's not like that. She's just, she's just Dana, but just totally besotted with him. Um, and um, I did, I, I debated having Culkin back as the kid, but Culkin's actually too old at this point, you know, like to really nail the casting. Culkin? Uh, Macaulay Culkin, sorry, coming back in as her kid, you know. From he, was the... he, he wasn't the kid. No, 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 sorry. I said back in, didn't I? Um, yeah, that really confused me. Sorry, man. But yeah, you know, okay. I mean, coming in as the kid, like, you know. But he'll be too old, right? Yeah, yeah like that's exactly it. Old. Way too old. That's, that's why I ruled you get, it out. Get the younger Colkin. Yeah, you're right. Get, get succession in. Yeah, nice, man. That's a good shout. Um, anyway, he's not, I mean, the kid has nothing to do with this anyway, but I just thought, like, she probably has to bring the kid with her to the station and maybe he's a bit annoying and mucking around. You're going to have to reference the fact that Oscar exists. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, she puts Slimer back in the cage and, uh, and and so that just sort of, it's just a little nod to say she knows how to operate the system. Uh, this is just for an idea I have later on. Um, and so from a, from a previous time with the guy, she's relatively handy around the station, if you know what I mean. Um, and anyway, like, you know, somewhere in this mix, you know, Venkman's got a little, well, at least she's not a dog this time, you know, that kind of gag. Um, so, of course, they all investigate. Of course, they all somehow go under with the water as well and encounter Rickman each. Um, and I don't know what order or anything yet, but I thought it'd be quite fun to just play with you and maybe just keep keep the thought on this, Jeppy, for the end. But, um, you know, I, I figured, like, Egon might go next. And, um, and maybe what his heart desires is some kind of Nobel Prize in science. Um, maybe, uh, and, and the way this plays out is they come out and they don't realise what, what's happened. So he would be exposed. And then, you know, next thing he knows, he's got it on the shelf or something. And he looks a bit quizzical at the prize. And then he's sort of, you know, suddenly he sees he's written loads of books or something. You know what I mean? And he's just like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm that guy. And then... Um, Winston maybe is a 
I don't know, it's a bit of a cliche, but maybe he wanted to be a jazz musician deep down in his heart. And, you know, before he knows it, they're just wandering around and he's actually playing Madison Square Garden that night. Like, you know what I mean? And he's got a gig to go to or something stupid. And he's got people keep adoringly coming up to him because they're massive fans and they can't believe he's out on the street or something like that, you know. And maybe um, Ray has sold off Ghostbusters to a massive conglomerate. I kind of feel Ray is very commercially driven he invested all his money in it as well you know and maybe there's something in that where you know suddenly they've got way better gear and everything's amazing and like but also they've totally sold it out and it's a disaster for that reason um and maybe i've got here uh Venkman is the only one that remains uncorrupted um uh, which is probably getting not allowing us to have too much fun but um but when he finally meets rickman he's the one that calls him on it um, in a never bullshit the bullshit sort of situation and, and of course it turns out that um rickman is actually the devil um not not god if you like and um candy sort of turns into quite a helpful jars from buffy style research character to help Bengman save his friends um and um you know it's one of these high stakes defeat is an option they're, they're playing against the devil etc cetera, etc cetera. um but for whatever reason that the devil's manifested um, in New York, um, and they do some kind of research. They identify that, you know, um, the, the area is actually too um, hospitable for him, so they need to make it inhospitable and send him back to hell. And so they need to get New York into one frequency or something or put out some kind of signal to New York. Um, and this is so ham-fisted, Sheppy, but I'm just sort of trying to keep the vibe of the first two. But, you know, they they, man they managed to realise they've got an entire network, of course, as before any kind of internet, um, where they can use the radio frequency of the New York cabs to all dial into one station at the same time and send out a signal like a dog whistle, um, sort of shrill beacon that sends Rickman back to hell. You know, that's the way they defeat him in the end. Nice. And, um, and then what I really wanted is a, sort of a bit of a stinger where they think he's gone, we're having a nice moment back at Ghostbusters HQ um, and um, the gang's all together, nice banter, whatever, you know, Venkman and bloody um, Weaver and a bearer are, are back together, you know, somehow through the honour again, off against shenanigans of the whole thing. Um, and, and we're having a... Um, a real why can't we be friends vibes the whole thing with Kath in the trilogy everything's happy <laughs> and then um and then at that moment the ground opens up the station becomes a hell pit and um and, and basically it's you know Rickman's final hurrah and uh and it looks like actually it might be extreme peril toy story three style and they're nah. looking at each other like holy shit we're going down this is it there's no escape and then Weaver acts really fast releases every single ghost which is really significant by now you know in the station all the possible yeah. evil and that level of evil going down into hell manages to close the portal up but the station's sort of devastated and you know it's just one big crater now kind of thing and um, and then it becomes a sort of uh well what do we do now and, and 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 i don't know there's some kind of hokey ending where they kind of no. walk off and dust themselves down and like you know what i don't know maybe they restart ghostbusters again or something and there's just something that gives it a bit of hope you know um, nice that's what i've got ships it's not as well can i ask unless i missed it but why was weaver totally fancying lewis that was his heart's greatest desire that's what he wanted oh yeah. sorry okay. i i because I, I, I thought he said i think i know he's like you want to go back to life and you don't want to go to heaven oh yeah uh, nice. No, sorry so the, the convention I so had if, it, if it was clear 
they could have a conversation. I, you're going to wake up and you can have your heart's desire. Yeah. And okay, that that's that makes sense. But okay, that's so they, they they I, didn't, I didn't explicitly say that. You're right. No, it's, that's exactly how it works. Like you sort of you come back to and then life they and then can find out. I mean, they can get into the plot through that. They're like, what the what the fuck? Yeah. Um, and he's like, I told you guys, you wouldn't believe me. Um, yeah, yeah, that's great. And I like I like it. And um, do we find out what the water situation, like the puddle of water, uh, like? Yeah, well, that that for me is sort of is it holy water? Was that the Reitman ghost though? I mean, so like, because at the bottom of the ladder where the I, Ivan Reitman ghost, there was the puddle. So I assumed the puddle was significant for that ghost. Maybe to be honest, so this is great edit. This is this is how we need to edit this shipping. It has to be Rickman, doesn't it? Sort of being different, being his being his. Was he in Die Hard when he's sort of suddenly one of the guests? <laughs> He's got to oh, be, yeah. man, you it's know, like he's being a different version. Yeah, he's being Bill, you know. Bill Clay. He's being Bill Clay, <laughs> and he's really <laughs> friendly and nice. But he looks a tiny bit different. But it's still him. You know, it was him. He's got his cap on or whatever, doing some. Maybe he's doing some maintenance or something instead of being a nice, charming librarian. Oh, and, um, yeah, and it's it's Rick from doing Bill Clay, and then he's like, "Oh, it's over there, Governor," or, <laughs> or his Bill Clay accent, like, oh, "You ever use those ping pong guns?" So okay. Uh, yeah, fine. That's a, better, that's a better way to go, I think. And then you then manifest into the water. water, and if you touch the water, you get given your heart's desire. And maybe they think it's holy water, and I'm editing on the fly here. They think it's holy water, that's and right. then maybe at that point, midway through, the big earthquake esque moment is the water, like a big flood through Manhattan of the water. Um, right, and, and it's um, granting everyone's wishes, but that's fucking everyone up. Yeah, and then that leaves Manhattan effectively deserted. And they have to go back in and turn on all the cabs. Maybe that's quite a nice moment. I like yeah, that. well, I like the cab thing as well, because that's all very identifiable with New York. And that goes back to what yeah. you were saying about the New York vibe. So I like that a lot. You're going to pick on one of us, you're going to take on all of us. Yeah, good stuff. Really heavy handed Spider Man. So <laughs> good stuff. That's great, man. Um, I'm loving it. And uh, yeah, so at some point, each Ghostbuster touches it and goes into the Nexus and gets their, their heart desire. Um, and you can imagine nice. if New York gets flooded, they're all they all have touched it, and there is actually, yeah. you know, millions of people causing chaos, cats and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> they're living together. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's great. Um, that's hysteria. Nice, Sheppy. Well, look, I want to hear yours, my friend. Let's do it. Okay. Well, let me say that was great. I like it. I like the the different bent to it um it's solid um so yeah i would absolutely see see that um i'm just going to go into this uh stop me if if anything isn't clear if you would like to make a comment otherwise i'm just going to plow through do it do it Sean. Do all right um so it's ghostbusters 3 same logo yeah i didn't even think about the ghost doing the three but of course he's doing the three uh, maybe mine is he's doing it with two hands, two ghost hands, who's in two and one for the three. Like that. Yeah. Uh, um, or maybe it's three of three ghosts coming out. Anyway, this is literally just so anyway, Ghostbusters 3, it's 1994. Um, so again, yeah, uh, it's directed by Ivan Reitman. It's got your Murray, Aykroyd, Weaver, Ramis, Hudson, Potts. Then you've got uh, Jeremy Irons. Uh, Adam Sandler, this is 1994 Adam Sandler, bit of a placeholder, but I'm sort of committed to it now. For some reason, David Spade, because I was thinking of uh, sort of 
who was big on Saturday Night Live in that sort of era, and I believe um, I'm right. So, you know, Stephen Tash, which is why I knew he pops up, tiny cameo, but the guy who gets electrocuted at the yeah. beginning of the first <laughs> he's there. Jordan Charney, uh, spoiler, Jordan Charney is Dean Yeager. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and Moranis. Uh, now, Moranis is in it, but it's pure cameo. Um, he, and I've gone the other way, and I, I'm not, I don't think we're going to have Sliver at all. Um, fuck the kids, because what I'm, what I really wanted to focus on, and I, I, you know, I think you're the same, but really, I'm not ignoring the events of Ghostbusters 2, um, but I am absolutely making a spiritual sequel to the first one in terms of tone and look. You know how much weight Mark Hamill lost before he went to play Luke Skywalker again? Um, it's a lot. I saw Mark Hamill in an episode of Chuck, and he looks like, like, he, he looks like Greenback from, from Danger Mouse. He, he, he looks like a big clown. He looks so much weight. He was a bull. He, you know, like Baron Greenback. So, um, Ramis and Aykroyd are going on the Murray, uh, on the Murray, on the, on the uh, Mark Hamill diet because I want them thin in this yeah. film. I want them thin. I want them in shape. I don't care how much it costs to get them in shape, but I want them both thin. <laughs> um, I want them looking like a 10 year older version of the original Ghostbusters. You know, they don't have to be perfect, but I, I don't, you know, I, I disapprove of their gluttony. So, um, so there's that. Um, it, you know, it's probably going to be a 12. It's not going to be a PG in 12 at this point. But, it, you know, a hero smoke. Um, they make new jokes. There aren't blowjob dreams, but that's sort of equivalent. It's, it, it goes back to that 80s. We're kind of a kid's film, but we're not really type thing. Um, it's like the original and, you know, American Werewolf, Shaun of the Dead in that, like we are saying about the first one, of course, the scary bits. Uh, and indeed, for this film, the whole premise and execution, very scary, totally played straight with all of the film's humour coming from our heroes' actions and personalities and reactions. Um, but but the, the film is like a full-on epic horror film, bit, you know, apocalypse-type thing, but with these people totally focused on in the centre, so therefore it's funny. Um, but there's no excuse. You know, massive extremes, you know, going for funny stuff. Uh, there are some, and again, you know, three or four proper scary moments. I will say, though, no one dies, and there, are, there isn't any proper swearing, maybe shit or something, but I will say this about the first Ghostbusters. I don't believe there's actually any death. Um, I think, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure, and so I'm, I'm keeping that. So even though there are scary bits in this, and some of it's quite hardcore, it's still that tone. Nothing more than we see in the original Ghostbusters. Can I just say one, like quickly, Sheppy, totally yes. tangent, tangential, but it's the first time yes. I've ever confessed this. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a phone party in a nightclub. It's quite a ridiculous thing to do. Sure. I, but I, I, I don't know. I, I honestly, I wish I had. I can't <laughs> say for certain. But, but of course, be... if I had, I was probably drunk. Because <laughs> it can get like it starts off fun and then actually it can get a bit full on. And I always have right. gone through like thinking it'd be amazing to be covered in marshmallow. Imagine all of the marshmallow and licking <laughs> fingers and all that. But actually, 
it would yeah. be freaking scary and suffocating. And and you your point just made me realise maybe some people suffocated and died a really horrible death in New York. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they were sued for Ghostbusters too. <laughs> yeah. You know how many people when that Stay Puft went down, so many is like you ants. Like... If you spill like a massive pot of money or something, <laughs> all of these floating dead people. And Ray would have confessed. He would have confessed to that yeah. as well. He's such so yeah. good-hearted. Anyway. Well, that's correct. Well, let's just assume that that didn't happen in this <laughs> version and there were no fatalities and everything's okay. <laughs> but I like that quite a bit. I mean, he did step on a church. Um, but all right. Um, there's no Slimer. There's no real Ghostbusters tie-ins. There's no massive thing walking through the city at the end. Now, Dana is involved due to her knowledge of, of various things that we'll get to. Um, and, spoiler, she is in a relationship with Pete. They haven't broken up in the interim again. They've stayed together this time. I sort um, of prefer that, Sheppy, to be fair. That's nice. There's, well, there, there's no... Well, fair enough. I didn't want... Again, it's like one of the things about Ghostbusters 2, of course, it's exactly the same thing. You know, she gets sucked into the plot in exactly the same way. In, in this film... There's no extraneous connection to the plot from her. She's connected because she's in a relationship with Murray um, and she plays a big part, but there's, yeah, she doesn't get sucked in. Anything. Now, um, this is all over the place, but I'm going to start at the beginning. That's the basic thing. Now, there's a, the, the pre-cred scene, the, um, you know, the library, if you will. First of all, black screen and another five years later comes up, saying, Bob, you'll be happy. <laughs> another five years later. Um, we open and it's the Bellevue Mental Hospital in Manhattan. Um, it looks clean and modern and nice. This, I, I, I didn't do any research here, but I think this is the mental hospital that they get sent to in Ghostbusters 2 with Murray Senior as the doctor. Um, I think, I'm pretty sure, but either way, it's the mental hospital. And it looks clean and modern and nice. Outside, uh, a familiar but slightly different siren can be heard. A motorbike pulls up and we have a huge close-up of a very close approximation of the Ghostbusters logo on the bike's body as the rider dismounts. We see the rider in bits, he puts on a proton pack. Uh, we see he's wearing the uniform, but it's a little bit different again. And we see a big close-up of the same logo from the bike on his arm as he strides into the building. They go to the inside interior, of the hospital, the doors open, and we have our character reveal. It's a young, dashing man, a Ghostbuster wannabe. Now, it's played by a hot young thing. If it was from 94, so I'd film with Adam Sandler. Um, if it was today or any time in the last 10 years or 15 years, it would be Ryan Reynolds beyond any reasoning. Of course, it would be Ryan Reynolds in this. Be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's Adam Sandler. Um, but again, I don't know, because I know in America, Sandler was much bigger earlier than he was, for example, in England, because we didn't have Saturday Night Live, and his earlier films, I don't think, were as big as they became and as they were when they were first released. So 94 Sandler, it only really works if he's not that big yet. It's like, you know, um, Moranis, if you like, not that he ever became as big as Sandler, but it's, you know, it's before he became huge. So if the, if the timing's wrong in 94, then someone, you know, not, who's about to break, but isn't huge yet. Um, so he strides in and he does a, you know, a heroic pose. A doctor in a white coat is a bit shambolic, rushes to meet him. 
I'm going to call this guy, I don't know what his name is, I've just called him Dr. B. I don't know where that came from. Uh, he's in his 40s or 50s. Uh, he's a bit scruffy. He has a very old stethoscope hanging from his neck. The young buster is filled with purpose and professionalism, but is also pretty cocky. Uh, Dr. B explains why he called. Uh, he got the number for this guy from a payphone underneath sex ads and pornographic graffiti and so forth. <laughs> Um, because the real Ghostbusters, he doesn't call them the real Ghostbusters because that's too much of a wink, but he said the actual Ghostbusters um, won't take his call. He's desperate, but they're too busy. And like you, Jimbo, it's not to the same extent, but there are lots of Ghostbuster wannabes all over the city at this point. Um, and he's one. He's an army of one, this Sandler Buster. Um, but no. there are lots. It's a bit like The Dark Knight Returns. Um, which is to say the, the, the Frank Miller film, because um, that's, you know, with lots of sort of Batman movies in that. So that's nice. Um, um, so there's been a disturbance in the old wing. So they take a lift down and they walk through uh, corridors and the deeper they go into the old mental hospital, uh, it gets more skanky and darker and, you know, lynchy, flickering, uh, you know, lights and strip lights and stuff. and. Uh, dripping ceilings and, and all sorts of you know, dank stuff, old equipment abandoned, and, you know, it's getting more and more sinister and nasty. Um, but any dread is offset by the witty banter from the buster. Uh, the doctor explains the nature of the emergency and what has been reported to be seen, which was a spectre rushing between rooms in the old abandoned. Uh, weird, creepy things start happening the deeper they go, just the two of them. Um, there's some creepy noises. Some shadows kind of bleed away. Uh, a wall shimmers at one point, and the air seems to creak. Um, they re uh, maybe there's like a dripping ceiling or a bucket, and the water's dripping up. You know, something classic. Um, they reach the last cell, uh, and it's all locked up. The doctor takes out a huge bunch of keys. Uh, the doctor's like, no one really understands what is referred to as the afterlife. Of course, everyone has their own interpretation and are usually displeased when they find things don't match up to their own version of how they want things to be. And the uh, Sandler Buster says, yeah, well, that's because people have no imagination. And the doctor's like, quite. He uh, inserts the key and turns the lock and open, unlocks the door. And he says, are you ready? And the Buster's like, you know, dark, trust me, a spectre, no sweat. Two spectres and a ghost, bring it on, bro. Three goes, five ghouls, three phantasms, and the Holy Spirit. He unholsters the arm of his proton pack and <laughs> flicks the switch and it turns on with that nice hum. He goes, back in time for cocktails, my friend. The doctor opens the door and the buster steps into the room. He's all ready. We cut to his reaction. It's sort of disappointed. It's, we, we see the room. It's small. It's empty. There's nothing. We see the doctor uh, in the background and the buster in the foreground, like sort of facing the wall, facing the camera. Uh, the buster is back to the doctor, says like, Doc, are you sure this is the right place? And the doctor says, right time, right place, right conduit. And the buster says, right conduit what now? Uh, behind the buster, just a hair out of focus, the doctor changes. He shimmers slightly, his eyes ebb, watery light. <laughs> His form breaks apart into something else entirely, but again, it's sort of out of focus. You can't really see, but obviously it's a setup. The buster senses it, but before he can turn around, the wall in front of him changes. Uh, he is facing it in the camera, so we don't see, but the lighting of the room changes. 
wind suddenly whips up and blows his hair in a frenzy. The light has changed from dank to now orange and all fiery. We hear the sound of great space and power, howls of beasts and a deeper layer of laughter with an elephant of intent. The buster shouting over the wind and more, but that's impossible. The buster turns around and sees the doctor's new form. The doctor's voice is now crazy and wild and certainly not human. The doctor, and yet here you stand, a human on the brink of reality as you know it and the end of sanity as you dreamed it. Behold human, the end of all worlds and the dawning of worlds yet to come. Welcome to hell, Ghostbuster. And then he screams and it cuts to the credits. I will say if the scream is too much like the librarian screaming, then we can keep the view in the true looking in the fridge thing to the second time. But if we really want to go for it, um, if it's not too much straight away, we do see you know, what, what he sees, which is, um, if we do see it, whenever we do see it, it's a hellscape, there's fire and orange clouds and black lightning and mountains of fire and volcanoes of screams, uh, vast and ancient a universe spilling out forever. It's basically, it's hell. Um, so anyway, so he screams and it's da 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 And then the logo and Ghostbusters and so on. If you wanted to keep the edge to it, Sheppy, like there, imagine just Sandra just freaking like terrified, like just absolutely terrified. Yeah, he plays it totally straight. Like, yeah, it's it's horrific. It's real. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah. And by the way, little spoiler, so Sandra isn't in it much. Uh, he's in this scene and he does come back um, and it's important, but it, yeah, he's, he's not the other Ghostbuster. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we find out more about him, but it's not, he doesn't have a very nice time. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's hardcore. And again, maybe showing the hellscape now is too much too soon, but ending on the screen, you could say that's cool. That's like bringing it back to the first one. Uh, which of course I don't like, but you do, you do. So, but whatever works, whatever whatever's good. Um, I'm going to say this: it was ten years, obviously, after the original. The Ghostbusters have been back in business since '89, after saving the city from the U's and bad vibes. So that's today. They're not heroes as such, but an accepted part of the city. Some love them, some hate them, but most sort of just take them and their service for granted, like the police or dustmen. There's still a steady stream of ghosts and the like which have to be controlled, but it's sort of seen almost like cockroaches. Everyone's not blasé, but everyone, it's 10 years of ghosts, so people are not, you know, uh, unused to it. Uh, tourists and ghost fans want to go and, you know, have photographs and autographs and so forth with the Ghostbusters, but generally they're, they're left alone. Uh, more glamorous and exciting to the public, actually, are the new hotshots, like the Sandler, maybe the David Spade, if it's someone like that, a uh, bunch of Ghostbuster wannabes, um, but our heroes don't really care too much because there's a lot of ghosts to go around. They're basically lazy, of course, anyway, and they do, you know, they're happy to give all the young bunch the dirty work and the slimer hunts. Um, but uh, there, there's ghost smashers, ghoul hunters, the real sh soul shakers, uh, or non-official affiliations, but our four, maybe not Ray, he doesn't like the idea of it and wants to be pure, but most of them are fine with it so long as the royalties remain theirs. That's Bacon's idea. Um, this was, uh, you yeah, know, so this is one of the busters that we saw, you know, Sandler get taken. 
the personal life, so Peter's with Dana, Ray is seeing someone, um, but I'll, I'll get to that. Um, Egon, he's on the dating scene and he is crushing it. E Egon is, is a wild man out there. He's, he's doing very well and has been for some time. Um, Winston is married. Um, now, I, I will say we don't see, like, like Winston, usually we don't see much, but we see enough. Um, he's juggling his home life and work life, and that's a recurring theme. And his wife, of course, is, doesn't want him hanging around with his like, you know, dirty friend. Um, she does not like Bateman, naturally. I see she might be played by Angela Bassett, but <laughs> I don't know if that's racist. But um, the main plot, um, so there's some backstory, which you know, we find out during the course of the film. But basically, uh, I did a bit of research. In 1687, the Bel Bellevue Mental Hospital opened in um, Manhattan. Um, now, in this reality, around that time, uh, a doctor who had been experimenting on the patients and the prisoners there had discovered a way uh, to use the right sort of affected mind to commune with the dead and the spirit underworld using these mad people as human guinea pigs and as conduits, uh, he had successfully opened doorways into the spirit world. He was eventually tricked and used by the spirits who then possessed him, kept his mind but ate his soul. He now exists between worlds as a sort of a, a constant, when I've written gatekeeper, we can change the, the wording. Uh, he is a half ghost sort of thing, sometimes a human apparition, a bit like your Whitman. Um, he is the main villain, for sure, uh, but uh, there's like a greater unity of the undead uh, underworld controlling, not controlling his actions, but telling him what to do, issuing orders, uh, a mass consciousness of damned souls, um, a social network of hellspawn, this big bad we don't ever really see, but it is insinuated that together, this collective of pain, the master of ghosts, the king of the underworld is, is the devil, essentially. Um, so we're both going for the devil. Um, Dr. B will break down the barriers between our world and the other, merging the two realities, consuming New York and then the world, and then everything else, uh, turning our streets into their streets and claiming our souls as they go, to basically converting first New York City and then everything else into basically hell on earth and, and so forth. Uh, so not even opening a door, but converting. Uh, to open the doors between worlds, the mad doctor with his experiments found that you need a conduit, and these would be humans that have had direct contact with ghosts or anything from the afterlife or underworld, um, and that can be used as a key, the conduit to open the door. If you've had contact with ghosts, then you're able to be used um, in the opening of the doors, uh, and you get enough of that, it's going to bleed realities. The more ghosts you've touched, the better a conduit you are, though he has some big interest in the Ghostbusters, of course. Uh, they are the prize to win. By the way, I didn't say this at the beginning because I wanted the Doctor's reveal to be a baddie, to be a twist for you, but um, it won't be that much of a twist for the audience because I'm going to have it played by Jeremy Irons. Uh, let's go classy. And indeed, you know, you've gone with Gruber, I've gone with the other Gruber. Look at that. I love it. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Actually. That is amazing. I'm all for that. But maybe Irons is vaguely unrecognisable at the beginning. We don't have a big close-up of him. He's wearing glasses, and he's not Irons as we usually think of him. But when he reveals himself, he takes off the glasses and sorts out his hair and turns into this weird thing. And he's standing much straighter. It's like, oh shit, that's Jeremy Irons. Oh no, Andy's the bad. Um, <laughs> and so, you catch so that they, Lion King scar, right? Yeah, You're catching him at a very yeah. good time. Mm, yeah, nice. yeah, solid. And and the year before his rumor. So yeah, it's it's good stuff. Good old irons. I've always loved irons. So anyway, um we we later see the Sandler Buster. Um he's a prisoner in the demon realm, having his essence drained into a thousand damned mouths. He's being used to open the last of the doors. Uh this scene can be terrifying when he's discovered is a kind of a real kill me type thing. We can't, you're already in hell. But it's also played funny with funny banter. I think he's going to be found by Murray. And he's like, are you okay, buddy? Do I look okay? Um, and he's like, just plugged in to hell. And he's being just like a huge battery back there in hell. You know, but yes, um, Dr. B wants the four Ghostbusters as their collective experience will surely open the doors wide. The last barrier smashed in order to merge the worlds. Uh, I haven't gone into much detail, but I think he finds out about Dana and Lewis and, realizes they're very strong conduit they have been possessed and metamorphosized and they're even more and so they get them and it's those two at the end well not the end but when spoilers he does merge our reality with hell it's through those two he gets um but i want to make it clear weaver isn't just a damsel in distress here she, she, she does a lot of stuff That's um also agency in either movie really does she First the first one is okay because she is the victim and they go into it through her. She doesn't have to necessarily do enough going on. She doesn't need to save the day. But if you're going to bring her back, then she needs to do something. And yeah, she doesn't really. She's just another you know, reason for the film to have the baby and all the pain and everything. So yeah, it's weak. It's weak as fuck. But in this case, um, also, one of, at the very near the beginning of the film, we find out that regular folks who have claimed to have seen ghosts are disappearing also. Some crazy wackos, but also like a pompous scholar who has actually seen a ghost at a caretaker at a famously haunted boat tour of New York Harbor. He's taken an old lady who's lived in a famously haunted house in town. And there's more of that later. Um, that's, that's big stuff. So she's taken and there's something significant to her. Uh, so that's, of course, Irons and his minions taking ghost, you know, uh, people who have met ghosts, seen ghosts, had ghostly experiences, who've lived in a haunted house, you're good for that sort of thing. And he's taking them and, you know, plugging them into hell. Um, so towards the end of Act 2, I don't know at what point in the film, I don't want it to be the very, very, very big climax. I would like it to be like a, a fairly significant part of the film, maybe like halfway through Act 2 is when Irons technically succeeds and he does merge New York City in with hell and the four heroes are in their, you know, are New York, but it's become hell and they have to go through this. Um, and again, it's, it, and that's when they meet Sandy. So, so I want at least, maybe least 30 minutes of this film, maybe, maybe 40 minutes being in hell. Um, and then the climax is kind of both. It's, you know, it's flipping it around. Um, so that's a laugh. Other characters, so there's Dr. B and he tries to abduct uh, Lewis for, because of his extreme content. And that's how Lewis 
sort of comes into it. Um, the Busters stop this originally and save him. They think that he's being abducted for some other reason, but they realize too late that it's because he's the gatekeeper or key master. And, and they realize, oh my God, Dana, and it's too late, but that's later. Um, in this case, there's also, ah, oh, now the, I had a, I sort of joined two characters who I thought of independently here. There's a, there's a tabloid hack who's always trying to show the busters in a bad light or catch them slipping up, which is always doing not, you know, really embarrassing photos. I know a lot, there could be a scene where like Bakeman is like, you know, you know, throwing down all the different newspapers with the front cover of the photo of like one of them doing something stupid. If Bakeman's showing the photo, it'd be all of him doing something stupid and yeah, <laughs> all sorts of funny things. Or like one of Rue and he's yawning, he's got some like ketchup on his face or something like that. Um, and it's all this and, and very funny headlines that you could come up with, you know, slime square, but you know, that sort of thing. But this tabloid hacks, she's, she's the peck of this film, but it's a she and there's a little twist that's, that's not far into the film, in the first half, certainly, where we discover, where Venkman discovers that Ray has been dating her for the last couple of months. <laughs> He's obviously been keeping it quiet because Venkman is not a fan of this broad. Um, and so that, that plays into it. Um, I wanted Ray to have a romantic interest and I didn't want it to be a female Ray. It's such a trope where you have, especially in a sequel, you have an established character and the writers are like, oh, they need to have a female love interest and it's a female version. And I'm gonna say Anchorman 2, I'm gonna say Brick, and it's not fair uh, picking on Anchorman 2 because that's a certain type of humor, but wouldn't it have been funnier if Brick's love interest was like a kind of a Lilith character, like this really buttoned up, uh, like really, really high intellectual psychiatrist but for some stupid reason, like just because of pheromones or whatever, she just has this massive uncontrollable like connection and longing towards uh, towards Brick. And would that, I don't know, would that be funny? But what I am just saying is that she's not a female, right? And I was for half a split second thinking Egon can have a romantic thing, but I think it's funnier that he's like really playing the field. And also it's too tempting to have a female Egon, fuck that. So none of that, but this, this girl, I don't know who's playing her, but she's cool and she's not super famous, but she's maybe again about to break out. I'm not going to say fucking Sandra Bullock. And I have nothing against Sandra Bullock, but it's not Sandra Bullock. But it's, it's someone who could conceivably be a peck, like someone who is actually not misunderstood, but she is a tabloid hack. And she does have all of the negative attributes that that stereotype carries with it. And it's genuine, but she does genuinely like Ray and they are in a nice relationship. Um, Could it be like a bit of a, they've split up or something, and that's why the bad press of the Ghostbusters? No, no, because the, the bad press has been going on for years, um, but it's only in the last two months that Ray has started seeing her, and that's why it's a big, big nice. thing. Nice, okay, gotcha. Um, it's, it's, been, you know, it's almost like she's become Bateman's nemesis, and <laughs> Ray's been trying to keep it quiet, and it's only recent. I didn't even know if it was going to be two months or if they'd only been on a couple of dates. Two months, they've been on a bunch of dates, you know, just warming up. Um, it's not crazy serious, but you know, it's it's realistic. They're not all over each other either. It's but they're they're tentatively seeing each other, and they do have a connection, and they have a genuine click. And despite her, you know, the nasty side of the character, she is a hero of the film. Uh, she's a goodie, essentially. 
But there was one little scene in the firehouse before this revelation happens where she's there and she's trying to get an interview with Bankman and they're sitting around that horrible table next to the containment and uh, you know, eating Twinkies and so on. And she's like saying to Bankman, you know, you're role models. Maybe you shouldn't smoke or drink or eat so much junk food. And Bankman's like, and I don't want to put words in Bankman's mouth because it's Bill Murray. And I would never presume because Murray, you know, I, I, he would elevate it far, but just for the sake of this scene, um, he's like, oh sure, let's just take sex off the table whilst we're at it as well. And Zedemore is like, wait, sex was an option? And Bankman's like, oh sure, on the table. And he points to the table and he's like, Zedemore's like, that table? And it's the table he's eating their junk food off. That's just a tiny little thing. <laughs> so, so that's all right. Um, now I'm gonna say this, so I'm jumping around a bit, but so you have the pre-crit and then it's da 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 And like you as well, Jimbo, I go to Columbia University campus, Columbia College. The music we fade up there. Straight away after go as busters, uh, it's the campus. It's graduation day, and all the students are sitting outside on their fold-out seats in their gowns and their robes and their hats. On the stage at the front um, is Dean Yeager, still very much the same as we last saw him. He is radiating disapproval, and he's introducing the guests for the commencement speech. He makes it very clear this was a student vote, and if left to him. The closest today's speakers would be getting to the stage and podium would be as trash collectors and dog waste handlers. Jaeger says, two ex-employees, not, mark you fellow graduates, not even ex-students, no. We have here today two men who worked here briefly and then were fired. And now here they are to talk to you. And it's Benjamin and, and Egon, um, and, the, um, and they take the stage and they give a, a little speech each. Uh, Egon's is dry and po-faced and just an idea, you know, it's like, you know, Egon saying something funnier than I'm going to be able to come up with, but it's like, students, you will be told you are worthless, that you are without talent or prospect or hope, you will be deluged with people telling you that you are not special, that is what they told me, even at a very young age, I always knew I was clever, when I was two, I reordered my father's medicine cabinet by order of tabled periodic relevance and core strength. I spent my youth bombarded with negativity. I was always told I wasn't smart enough or good enough, or my hair was too tall. Bakeman reacts. I was told with no uncertainty that I was a lesser species than my peers or my teachers. You may feel this too. So, remember this. Soon others learn, which I always knew, that I am indeed clever cleverer than my peers, my teachers, cleverer than my fellows and scholars, and cleverer than my colleagues, he looks at Bankman, who reacts. And yes, <laughs> I am cleverer by far than my parents. I am cleverer. You may not be. In fact, I think it's reasonable to say that you're not, none of you are clever or indeed anywhere near as clever as me. So that my message today is this, you may think you're special, but you're probably not. Unlike me, I am special and cleverer than all of you. Thank you. So that's, that's, that's Egon's speech. And there's a smattering of applause. Bakeman comes up and gives a speech, and I've just written, it's of Murray brilliance. Uh, yeah, it's Murray-tastic. I'm not even gonna try. It's, it's the best scene of the film. And I'm, you know, it's, it's Bill Murray being amazing in the speech. I can't even imagine. Um, Jaeger is hating it. The students are loving it. Jaeger storms for stage and tries to restore order. 
as his scathing critique is reaching climax and saying, you mustn't listen to these people. Meanwhile, in the crowd, we see a, a bitter ex-student standing unsmiling amongst many smiling faces. She takes off her, uh, her bag and takes out uh, an ancient and creepy looking doll. She mutters some chant into the doll's ear. The doll carries the spirits of the original owners. This is like a proper sort of like a voodoo doll type thing, like cloth. And um, the original owners come out. They all, uh, they're all ex-students from the university. Um, you've got maybe three or four ghosts, hijinks kick off. Uh, one of the ghosts is a scholar from the early 1900s who throws ghost books at people. And one student from the 50s who's bookish and a bit racist. A student from the 60s who's of course a stoned hippie. A student from the 70s maybe who's a Black Panther. Um, nice. these, these ghosts wreak havoc. Uh, students flee and some are plucked up by the ghosts and thrown up trees or hazed in some old-fashioned and inappropriate manner. Egon and Bateman rush to the parked uh, Ecto-1. Bateman gets in and is all ready to drive off, but Egon opens the boot and takes out their proton packs. And he says, no, Peter. Uh, so Bateman's like, just so you know, I voted against coming here. In fact, I was dead set against college in the first place. It's all politics now. So they suit up. Uh, the two of them battle the four ghosts. They use the classic tech as well as some new uh, tricks that Egon has, like a plasma bomb and all sorts of weird ghost grenades. They fight in and around the campus, inside the faculty lounge, and uh, finally outside the dean's personal accommodation quarters, which gets destroyed. In fact, they destroy a large part of the campus and get it all covered in some sort of shit. Uh, Venkman finds time to flirt with some pretty co-ed before vanquishing the ghouls. Um, we also see one faculty member who is totally freaking out. It, it's not really said, but sharp-eyed viewers may recognize him as the electrocuted student from the original. Now I'm going to tell you this, Jimbo, for a second, I was going to have electrocuted bloke from the original being the guy who's bitter and unleashing the ghost because he doesn't like Venkman, but it, it just was too much like, ah, ah, yeah. So I just, he, you know, he's, he's, I'm, 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 I'm staying away from the temptations too much, but he's there, he's a faculty member now, or a father maybe, but let's say he's a faculty member and he, he's, he's fucked up, you know. Um, when, when Vakeman and Egon finally do catch the ghost, we see the, the guy, buzz boy, um, Stephen Tash, he's, uh, he's left covered in ghost shit, he stuck up the flagpole without trousers. Uh, Jaeger is livid, of course, and powerless to say or do much. You see, I have finally given him his comeuppance. He stands in the ruins of his home with goo and slime and rubble and phantasm drool all over him and everything he ever loved. Uh, Venkman and Egon stroll past. Uh, they're wearing mortarboards. Uh, Venkman's like, who said you can't go back? And they drive off with a cheeky horn salute in the car. So that's like the opening big set piece, which is right at the beginning, basically after the pre-read. And it can be as big or not as big as the budget, but I think this has got a bit of a budget, this film. And why not? Let's go for it. Uh, meanwhile, we, we see what Ray and Winston are up to. And I, you mentioned this, and I like this pairing. And I really like the scene in the first film where it's the two of them just driving in the car and they have this nice conversation about the end of the world. And they have a really nice ease with each other. And it's the only really, frankly, good scene. Well, that's not fair, but it's a really good scene with Zedemore. And, and I like his relationship with Greg. 
Um, so there, I'm, I'm leaning into that for this bit. They're on a routine ghost call out and they cover, they uncover something big and potentially city threatening. Uh, they go to this very, very old hotel in New York. There's one of those really old lifts with, you know, the, the pool, the door thing, which you pull to one side, old stuff everywhere. Um, now this, we've just had the big Columbia University bit, so we don't need a big sequence here at all. Actually not much happens, but it's, um, it's creepy, something's going on. Um, whilst they're investigating, there's some creepy happenings. Their conversation is nice, and we also find out, you know, about their respect. So like, we find out Ray's seeing someone, we don't, we don't find out who yet. We find out uh, Winston is married and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, nice exposition, but hopefully nice and not clunky. Um, they have some relaxed banter, they explore. Uh, the building is hiding many secrets. It's not just haunted, as Ray discovers. It's like there's something just below the surface. Um, and of course, because it's such an old hotel, it's kind of a conduit as well. But Ray is unnerved uh, and scared to scratch, lest he find out what's really there. They have a creepy experience. Um, they don't catch a ghost, but they see this ghost in a straitjacket, screaming and begging for help. Uh, and Ray's a bit, you know, well, Zedemore says, why are you so freaked, Ray? You've seen ghosts. And Ray's like, yeah, but they're not usually afraid. So like, what, what could scare a ghost? And of course, it's you know, the coming of hell. Uh, the scene ends with them needing to take what they found to someone who knows what they're talking about, someone who knows a lot about the history of New York, someone who knows about the buildings. Ray's like, I know just the person. Zedemore's like, who are you going to call? Uh, so we cut to Dana Barrett. Uh, she is now a historian and author. Um, with her new book, is focusing on New York, its history and its architecture. She's at a book signing. She's explaining to a fan why she got into the publishing and history after her job of cleaning old paintings didn't work out, but it made her realize that her passion for history extended more beyond the art world, uh, that there could be art in everything, especially a city. And the fan is like, why the fascination for old buildings and architecture? And she's like, I've lived in some fascinating buildings. I was like, oh, are you sure that's the Ark of the Covenant? Pretty sure. So Ray and Zed, and maybe actually all four Ghostbusters turn up and we're led to believe it's some jubilee pokery that Pete and Dana haven't seen each other for the last five years and they're having this sort of stilted conversation, but then it's phony and then they kiss and leave saying, oh, by the way, I brought you a gift. And he holds up Oscar, who's like, mommy. And, she, and they, they're together. <laughs> I don't think they're married, I don't, uh, but they're, they're together. They're, they're as good as married, but they're not. I don't, I just, they're not married. But they're, they're together, they've been together since Ghostbusters 2. And Oscar is now like six. He's not a Culkin, I don't give a fuck what he is. Um, and the babysitter, oh God, is it Janine? I don't think so. There's the babysitter, there has to be, because otherwise we have to be told who's looking after. Maybe, and I'm just thinking of this now, but maybe the babysitter is Dana's mother. Um, although that doesn't, well look, it's someone, maybe, because Dana's mother does come into it. But Pete and Dana, um, he's flabbergasted. He's, he's, he's in love and he's in a good relationship, not without its problems, but it's a good relationship. And he and Ray, uh, Pete is flabbergasted that Ray and Egon are doing, you know, living the singles life um, as far as he's concerned. And Egon especially is a bit of a catch. And, you know, and he, and now of course, Bacon is tied down and he sees Egon go out every night. And, you know, it's not a huge thing, but, he is kind of like unbelievable. How did this even happen? You know, um, their investigation—all all five of them 
including Dana, uh, leads them all over the city to the haunted hotspots, which are being targeted by Dr. B and his minions to abduct the people who live there due to their close proximity to ghosts and so forth. Now, I did some more research. There's a building called the Morris Jamal Mansion in, in New York. And this is the first big set piece after the Columbia campus uh, moment. And this is the old lady who I mentioned earlier is one of the people who get abducted. Dana and so on, she works out about you know, the pattern when people who are being abducted around hotspots, ghost hotspots, and they go to see this old lady to see if she's had any recent, because um, okay, so there's this real building um, and it's, it's like it was built in 1765 and it was built by a colonel or colonel in the British Army in, in 1765, um, the Georgian mansion in Washington Heights. Um, and it was actually, this is true, it was used as a base in the uh, Revolution War for both sides at one point. George Washington lived there and strategized there during the war, but also at one point uh, the Brits did as well. So with that knowledge, which will be, you'll be told as an audience member, the lady, the old lady who lives there in this famous war house, she is visited by the Ghostbusters, but whilst they are there with her, or at least some of the Ghostbusters, I do want all four of them together, but that's gonna be in hell. So maybe it's two of them go and see this old lady, maybe with Dana, um, and then the minions turn up and kidnap the old lady. Um, and to get away with the old lady, they conjure up the other ghost. Dr. B can conjure ghosts. And so revolutionary soldiers from both sides uh, as ghosts, of course, appear in this house and they're fighting each other and it's pandemonium and the old lady's kidnapped and our heroes are trapped in the crossfire and it's like the bullets could still hurt them, ghost bullets could pass through them but still do damage and stuff, so they have to escape that situation. Um, they're trapped in the crossfire but they do escape, they stop the war ghosts but the, uh, the old lady's gone. There are other set pieces which I haven't gone into any detail for but uh, Brooklyn Zoo uh, ghost animals that must be caught and stopped. I think Dana and Pete are there, but maybe Ray and, and the, the journalist, who I never gave a name to, but um, maybe those two. But yeah, he's, um, but one of one of the couples are there with Brooklyn Zoo and with ghosts, ghost animals. Also Coney Island, uh, they go there, the haunted roller coasters, a creepy roll up, roll up ghost uh, carousel with creepy music and spinning ghosty horses. And there's a big set piece there at some point. Grand Central Station, ghost fight, ghost trains, ghost commuters, ghost tunnels, real commuters having to be saved. The ancient hotel that I mentioned, which is you know the main doorway um, to, the, to the other world. And of course, Bellevue Hospital, which is the home of Dr. B and all of the souls who he tortured in life are now still trapped there and he controls them in death. Uh, now there's another scene in the first half of the film before things totally kick off. Um, where Pete and Dana have had a big argument that he has still not met her mother. So that makes the, but maybe it's like you've never socialized with my mother. Maybe it's not that you haven't met her, but I don't know. Either way, Dana's angry at Pete for not hanging out with the mother. Ray um, has been found out about dating the journal uh, and he, Dana has found out that he's meeting her mother that night. And that's like, we've been together for five years, Bateman, and I, and, you know, Where's your, where's your mother? So there's something, someone's mother thing is upset about. So basically, uh, there's a large scene involving a massive group date. There's a proper comedy scene, just to offset all the horror stuff that I thought of. So 
So it's Pete and Dana, and Dana's mother, who's played by someone like Anne Bancroft in a cheeky cameo, and maybe her father, uh, Ray and the journo and her mother, and I've got Vanessa Redgrave, question mark, um, and also Winston and his wife, and that gives us a chance to have some nice character moments with, with her and you know, Angela Bassett and the side side characters all having a moment in this big scene. And finally, of course, Egon and his date, who is just this goddamn sex bomb, this insanely attractive and also very successful psychiatrist or scientist or lawyer lady who's there dating Egon and Peter is just flabbergasted and just so he's not surprised because it's like the last in a long list of like Egon conquests, but he's just like unbelievable. Um, the scene is in a very nice restaurant and there's lots of passive aggressive jokes and little comments and comments between, you know, Pete and the journalist, of course, and the mother and him being really charming to, to Dana's mother and Dana getting more uptight and wound up by it all. Um, it's a nice twist, but yeah, Dana's mum does get on very well with Bankman, who's pure charm with her. Uh, Bankman is more concerned about throwing barbs at the journo. Bassett is throwing shade at Bankman and Ray for the continued busy and immature and sometimes dangerous lifestyle that involves her husband. Um, so it's a character-driven scene with lots of witty dialogue um, and it, it ends with a big ghost attack and mayhem and they have to you know, think about the ghost and stuff. Uh, towards the end of Act 2, they make it to the, all of the Ghostbusters together, make it to the insane asylum, they fight some ghosts, they meet um, the Sandler, Buster, and they have that scene that I mentioned. Um, the hell doors are opened uh, and the underworld beats out. Um, they're stranded in the ghost realm and must fight and quip and find a way out uh, before it ble bleeds into hours and solidifies and stays like that. Um, the underworld is its not an abstract. It's actually not dissimilar to our New York with streets and things, but it's just like a weird, dark, strange, surreal version of it. It's got like fiery, wavy, warped elements and it's all populated with ghouls. And not all malevolent, malevolent ghouls for that, but some, but some are, you know, proper nasty. Um, reality is weird there for sure. And reality rule breaking things happening with weird gravity and corners that don't make sense and stuff like that, some trippy visuals here and there. But basically it's a mirror New York. And the final confrontation happens with both of the realities sort of blending in and out, and they, they come out in the hotel, um, and Dana and our heroes, and Ray's love interest, and Moranis and Janine, uh, all helping from the sidelines um, with small but crucial contributions from all of the side characters. Um, Lewis, Tully, and Janine are not together in this film, by the way, but they have a funny ex-relationship tension. Um, the Busters close the rift and seal the door and destroy Dr. B. The, the devil, uh, the collective pain, is trapped on the other side and all the tortured souls from the asylum, as well as all of those abducted to use as conduits, they're all set free, either as happy humans or happy ghosts. Um, the Sandler Buster is freed and comically fucked up like Tully at the end of the original. And at the end, he joins the team proper becomes the big one. Um, so Egon like says to the Sandler Buster like at the very end when they're leaving the building, like, so do you want the job? And the Sandler's like, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't have to meet any more ghosts, do I? And Ray's like, ah, oh, let's talk. Uh, Pete and Dana are together with Oscar 
uh, Ray and uh, the journo were together. Egon is now the only bachelor left. Peter's made, of course, some sort of peace with the journalist, and it seems like Ray and her are totally established. Um, so now Egon, as the only bachelor, Bateman says to him as they step out and all the crowds are cheering and stuff, like, uh-oh, someone's stock is about to skyrocket. And Egon's like, my stock is often compared to a rocket. Bateman reacts. They leave the remains of the asylum or the hotel with the crowds cheering in the streets. The world, and more importantly, New York City, is safe. The end. And some taglines. Uh, the main tagline is, it's time to make the cool. Uh, then we also have a slightly clunky one. The ghost world is coming to ours, dot, dot, dot. And there are only four guys who can stop it. Pretty rubbish. And they're going to give their city hell. It's the, it's the last one. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's, thanks, man. <laughs> so that's, that, uh, that's Ghostbusters 3. Uh, so uh, I'm, it's, it's, no, no, it came Looking together. That was amazing. Epic, amazing. Jeez, so much love and thought. And I, I'm actually, I had a little Google. I've got two about, things like, like hotspots. <laughs> two things to say. One of all the scenes, and I always find this, I find this in the Marvel movies. I'm more interested in the bits around the action. Um, but I'm excited about the restaurant scene and the date scene and the comic potential and the interplay potential of that scene makes me happy because I just want nice. to hang with the Ghostbusters. So I'm really happy you put that in there. And then, like, you've tapped into something really interesting with Egon it's, that, is, that is there, but you've made it front and centre, the sort of the arrogance of Egon, the blind, just absolute arrogance of him is really interesting. And you've done some really interesting stuff with that all through there. I like it. I like it, Sheps. It's cool. And Cheers, I like the character. I think he's, I think you want to, you give the, the, that cocky kid, you know, get some media, media, <laughs> disproportionate <laughs> come up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a horrible time. <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing like fingers like pushing through his skull into his face. You know, it's it's in the spirit world, so it's not like gory, but it can just be horrible, horrible looking stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I see him like just sort of like in a cage, but like like in stocks in a way where he's totally you know immobile, but it's like in a really uncomfortable position. It's weird stuff. So yeah, yeah, poor old that guy. I, uh, I feel a little bit like the Police Academy guy, Sheppy. I've got a little puppy underneath me right now, just causing chaos with the phone. He's got the bloody earphones on him and everything. He's about to pull them. There we go. They're out. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you feel what Police Academy guy has a no, puppy? Well, actually, that's ridiculous because it's implying my puppy's giving me a blowjob. We're talking about blowjobs. Oh, it's <laughs> the blowjob. I was thinking chaos. you meant like I'm making puppy noises like Michael Winkler. No, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, like stupid references without context. Um, just um, so ships before he eats me alive. What is the challenge for next week? The next week, Jimbo, and I was never considering this, but it's because I want to have a specific conversation with you about something vaguely connected with it. So the it, the challenge for next week, Jimbo, is a sequel to Die Hard. It's any sequel. It could be Die Hard Six, or it could be a different Die Hard Two. It could be a different Die Hard Three. It could be any. You could make Die Hard with a Vengeance, Die Hard Four, and there's been like another Die Hard in between Die Hard and Die Hard with a Vengeance. So there's like two sequels between. You can do. You can do it anywhere in the timeline between any of the films, replacing any of the films, or whatever you like. 
Uh, is a stipulation? Go. I think I think I will do that. Yeah, that's right. I've got another idea for you, which is a thread on Die Hard. I want to pull with you one day. So we'll nice. put a pin in that. But, nice. But yeah, um, but I, uh, brilliant. Okay, man. Wow. Challenge accepted all over that. I'm loving it. Just to be clear about the Die Hard thing. Yeah. So it's McLean, it's Willis, and it can be anywhere within the timeline after. I'm going to say anywhere with hair. <laughs> okay. Well, that's where I'm going. I want my Willis, like I, you know, with, with the hair. I, well, not my Willis, but I want my McLean with the hair. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Spoilers. Um, my my Sheppy. I'm loving it, Jimbo. And, uh, well, that yeah. was lovely. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Any comments? Any thoughts? Uh, please write and let us know what you think. If you think there would be a good Die Hard three. Uh, what a good idea would be or if you have any suggestions for future podcasts please let us know in the meantime Jimbo anything else you need to uh, throw out there nothing from me Sheps nothing well Jimbo until next week see you at the party pal (laughs) we'd love to hear from you please reach out to us at shoulderspod.com or shoulderspod at Twitter, Instagram and Facebook.